Well, many years ago, when I was still teaching at Edison Junior High, I noticed uh, coming back to school from summer break that a fellow teacher, a female colleague, had lost a significant amount of weight over the summer. I just, I didn't know her well. I didn't speak to her very much. Uh, I, she was a very, very nice uh, lady and very personable. And, uh, but I just assumed that she had lost weight on purpose through exercise, exercise and diet. But uh, I found out uh, pretty quickly that uh, my assumption was wrong. I, I overheard some teachers talking about her, not in a mean way, but as friends that were concerned about her. This happened in the teacher's workroom when we were having lunch. And so these two friends of hers, uh, teacher friends of her, were, were concerned about her. And, and uh, they, they mentioned that she had lost all this weight because she had gone through an unwanted divorce. Apparently there was another woman involved. She didn't ask for that. And so she had gone through, or she was going through a divorce and it, it affected her. Uh, physically in, in that way. And uh, I, I, I thought about that as I was preparing for this message today on dealing with divorce. I'm going to talk to you today about dealing with divorce. And some of you uh, whose lives have been touched by divorce would be able to testify to what this teacher went through. And again, this was many years ago. And in fact, many people, many people have had their lives touched by divorce. If not directly, then indirectly. Maybe you know somebody. Uh, maybe there's a friend uh, who's gone through a divorce, or maybe you have a brother or sister who went through a divorce. Maybe your parents divorced. It's always painful to be a child of divorce. Or maybe one of your own children has had this, this terrible experience. Uh, like I said, we've all had friends and, and family members who have been through a divorce. It's all around us. So it's significant that in our continuing study in the Sermon of the Mount, we come now to Jesus' teaching on divorce. So as I said, I'm going to talk to you today on uh, dealing with divorce. Now it's been two weeks since our last sermon in this series from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so today's message is a, just a really a natural continuation uh, of the last portion of scripture that we read, you know, you've had two weeks now to absorb and, and reflect the last, the last message on adultery, lust, and hell. Uh, so we're going to continue that and continue what Jesus uh, said about this. And so we're going to read, uh, we're going to, we're going to read three different passages of scripture. We're going to go to all three of them, uh, more than once. We're going to be in Matthew 5, which is the portion that's up next in our study in the Sermon on the Mount. We're also going to go to Matthew 19, and we're going to go to Malachi uh, chapter 2. And we'll read uh, another one or two uh, verses, but those three we're going to return to. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and Malachi 2. So first of all, to where we left off last week, Matthew 5, beginning with verse 31, Jesus said this, It has been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now we would be lying to ourselves if we said that this passage here was easy to understand. 
it's, it's not easy to understand. Uh, divorce in itself is a difficult and painful subject to address. And I think we make it worse if we think that everything that Jesus taught about divorce is found in these two verses. First of all, if, it, if, if this were everything that he taught about divorce, even that wouldn't be necessarily clear enough. Uh, but there, there are other portions of Scripture that are important for us to consider. What Jesus is doing here is he's addressing a very specific issue, answering a very specific uh, uh, question here. And uh, so, again, my uh, goal today is to draw out some general principles uh, about what Jesus teaches about divorce. Uh, because to get really specific, you know, this is, these passages have been studied for uh, hundreds uh, of years by some of the brightest minds. And uh, there's not 100% agreement on what Jesus meant. And so Jesus uh, begins here. And by the way, before I, I go on, uh, even that uh, verse 32, which says, uh, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Some versions of the Bible have translated that uh, the man who divorces his wife makes her an adulteress. So, I mean, it, the, the meaning of what Jesus was trying to say is, is not 100% clear, but I think there are some overarching principles that are clear that we can draw from Jesus' teaching on divorce. So Jesus begins by telling us here how our righteousness should surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees when it comes to divorce. Now, these six antitheses that we've been talking about that we're in the middle of, of reading and learning and discussing. Um, they, they go back to what Jesus said in Matthew 5.20. Matthew 5.20 where Jesus said that our righteousness should surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus said that if our righteousness does not surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, then we cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So these, and then right after that, he, he goes into the six antitheses, and, and these six antitheses are all, you have heard it said, this is, he's explaining what the righteousness of the Pharisees was, but I say unto you, he's telling us how we can surpass the righteousness. And so the, the way, you know, he, he talked about um, anger, you've heard it said, you know, the righteousness of the Pharisees was, um, you know, I haven't killed anybody, so I'm okay. Jesus said, no, even if you're angry, then, you know, you're, you've already sinned in your heart. Adultery, their righteousness was superficial. I haven't committed adultery. It doesn't apply to me. He says, yeah, but even if you look on a woman to commit adultery, then, you know, you've sinned in your heart. And, and so now he goes to divorce. It's the same thing here, right? Uh, he, he's, he's going to tell us how our righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees. And here's Here's what I think the overarching principle is here. The Pharisees were preoccupied with grounds for divorce, but Jesus was concerned with faithfulness in marriage. This is what we're going to see here, that the Pharisees were preoccupied with grounds for divorce, but Jesus was concerned with faithfulness in marriage. Now, I mentioned that Jesus here seems to be addressing a very specific debate in first century Judaism that 
said that there were two prevailing, that included two prevailing thoughts or two prevailing Jews taught by Pharisees concerning divorce. There was one Pharisee whose name was Hillel. He had one view of divorce that a whole bunch of them followed. There was another Pharisee by the name of Shammai. He had a different view of divorce. And so Jesus is really addressing this debate between these two views. Now, the, the first view by a Pharisee named Hillel was a view that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. So they actually had written out the, uh, some documents. There were documents during this is first century Judaism that had been written out that spelled out what uh, was allowed, uh, how uh, a, a man was allowed or what were the allowances, I should say, for a man to divorce his wife? And it included all kinds of things. I'm going to share a few things with you here in just a minute. But even for burning his food, he, he could divorce his wife. And with this divorce, the man was then free to remarry. And in many cases, he would specifically divorce his wife because he had his eye on somebody else he wanted to remarry. And that was uh, reason enough. And according to this view... According to this view that a man could divorce his wife for any reason, certain physical defects in his wife, if they were offensive enough to him, they were legitimate grounds for divorce. This is crazy. So I said there, were, there are actually some documents uh, out there that uh, in first century Judaism that spelled out some of the reasons for which a man could divorce his wife. So I'm going to just quote from one of these documents. And uh, this, is, this is quoted in a book by uh, Dr. Charles Quarles called Sermon on the Mount, Restoring Christ's Message to the Modern Church. So he, he quotes this first century document. Uh, he, he says, consequently, uh, a man could divorce his wife if she had a head that was wedge-shaped, turnip-shaped, or hammer-shaped, or if her head was otherwise malformed, such as sunk in or flat at the back. He could divorce his wife if she had poor posture or if she had thinning hair. He could divorce her if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. He could divorce her if she had a pug nose. Now, this is all what the Pharisees believed, this group of Pharisees. The condition of her eyes was particularly important. If she had eyes too high or too low, if she were cross-eyed, had no eyelashes, had eyes of two different colors, watery eyes, or eyes big as a calf, or small like a goose. Any of these justified divorce. The man could divorce his wife if her nose were too big or too little, her ears too little or too floppy. If she had an overbite or an underbite, missing teeth, a poor figure, a swollen belly, a protruding navel, bony ankles or knees, swollen feet, if she were bow-legged, suffering from swelling of the big toe, if her heel had protrusions, if the sole of her foot was as wide as that of a goose, or if she were ambidextrous. That just about covers everything. If any one of those reasons, for any one of those reasons, a man, a Jewish man could divorce his wife. That was the, the view of Hillel and those that, that followed him, they, they just believed that, that couples could divorce for any reason. 
And this is implied, I mentioned we're going to go to Matthew 19 here in just a minute, not quite yet, but this, is, this view is implied in the Pharisees' question in Matthew 19 to Jesus when they came up to him and they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? You know, that's what they, they wanted to believe and that's what they believed. But there was another view of divorce. This was held by a Pharisee named Shammai that said that divorce was only allowed in the case of adultery. And so Jesus sided with this second view when he said, go back to Matthew 5.32, when he said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he, he totally rejects this view, this first view, and he, he sides with this second view. It's a very, that's why I said it's a very specific answer addressing this debate. That's why we can't hang our hat on, this is everything there is to say about adultery right here. He covered it all. No, he's just answering this issue. He's addressing this debate right here. But in order for us to understand what Jesus is, is saying overall and why his concern is for faithfulness in marriage, then we have to understand what God says about marriage. And this is when we go to Matthew 19 now. Look at Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So he, he answers their question with a question by you know, pretty much drawing their attention to the fact that like you're you're the, the religious leaders, you're the teachers of the law, you're the Pharisees, you've read the scriptures, haven't you read this portion? Of course they had, but they were wanting to believe something else. So he points out to them that marriage is not something new, but it's something that God himself planned even from the beginning of creation. You know, a lot of times people see marriage just from the human perspective. And they forget that we aren't joined together in marriage by human law, but by God. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. So he's telling them, look, this goes way back. They, you know, they're, they're talking about divorce. They're looking for allowances, for grounds for divorce. And Jesus is saying, no, I want to talk to you about marriage. I want to talk to you about marriage. I want to talk to you about faithfulness in marriage. You know, they were preoccupied with grounds for divorce. And Jesus was concerned with faithfulness in marriage. And he says this goes way back when God put Adam and Eve together. And so often divorce is pursued while people forget that God has united the two together in marriage. And to separate a bond like that. A bond that God has created to separate a bond like that uh, is impossible without pain or without ripping up or tearing uh, a part of the two hearts and two lives that were joined together in a covenant of marriage. And that's why I believe that, that uh, Jesus has a passion 
for faithfulness in marriage. And I believe that's why divorce breaks God's heart. In Malachi 2, we, we read uh, this in Malachi 2.15 where, uh, where the prophet says, Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit you are His. And what does He want? What does God want? Well, He wants godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. And then He says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. So God says clearly, I, I hate divorce. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. Some other translations talk about uh, to divorce your wife is to do violence to her. So guard your heart and, and be uh, faithful. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Now God hates divorce, but nowhere does the Bible teach that God hates divorced people. We're going to find out in our second point that it's just the opposite. He hates divorce because of what it does to his children. He knows the pain and the devastation that divorce causes. It says here clearly to divorce your, your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. Who wants to be overwhelmed with cruelty? Children are, you know, receive part of that overwhelmed cruelty in their lives. So he hates divorce, I think, for that reason. But I think there's another reason why God hates divorce. And, and, and this reason is found in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Paul writes this, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. I think another reason why God hates divorce is because it destroys what is the highest purpose for a marriage, and that is to illustrate to the world the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. When a man and woman love each other within the context relationship of marriage, that marriage is an illustration to the world of the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. When people see a faithful relationship in our marriage, it'll be easier for them to understand the relationship between Christ and the church and the relationship that God wants to have with them. They can get a picture of that by seeing a faithful marriage. Because our marriages are pictures of God's love for the world. My marriage is a picture of God's love for the world. Your marriage is a picture of God's love for the world. But when we separate what God has joined together, that illustration of love, that illustration of God's love is no longer there for the world to see. So divorce breaks God's heart because he has a passion to see faithful marriages among his children. So the righteousness of the Pharisees was, was simply to look for uh, legal grounds for divorce. But the better way, the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees' righteousness is to have a passion like God, God does for faithfulness in marriage. 
Here's a, a second principle that I'd like to draw out, overarching principle from, from this, and that is that God's passion for faithfulness in marriage is matched only by His compassion for those in broken marriages. God's passion, or yes, God's passion for faithfulness in marriage is matched only by His compassion for those in broken marriages. And Jesus clarifies that although there were uh, circumstances in which divorce was permitted in His answer to the Pharisees, it was not permitted because, oh, that was God's perfect ideal, but rather because of the hard-heartedness of one or maybe even both of the individuals in the marriage. This is why, going back to Matthew 19 now, Matthew 19, this is why in Matthew 19, after Jesus told the Pharisees and you know, answered the question uh, with a question and took them back to the origin of marriages and uh, the marriage in Genesis, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came back with this question. Look at Matthew 19, 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not that way from the beginning. So Jesus understands that sometimes uh, divorce was allowed, but that was not, an, and it still is not God's ideal, but it was because of the hardness of hearts. God's ideal was and continues to be no divorce, but He allows it because of the hardness of our hearts. But then Jesus clarified that there are exceptions to the no divorce stance. Back to Matthew 5, verse, six, uh, verse 16, or verse 32, rather. Matthew 5, verse 32, where, uh, once again, where he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife makes her a victim of adultery. But in between that is the exception, right? I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now I think there are a couple of things, I think there are two things for us to understand from this verse. So just kind of keep this verse uh, open. Uh, two things that I think we can, we can understand and learn from this verse. First of all is that Jesus is concerned with the victims of adultery. Adultery has victims, right? Jesus is concerned with the victims of adultery. The Pharisees were always concerned with keeping the law. The Pharisees were the ultimate rule keepers. That's all they cared about, keeping the law. Jesus was concerned about the individuals. He was like, keeping the law is not enough if, it's not enough if you're going to create victims. Keeping the law, you know, being the ultimate rule keeper is not good enough if you create victims that you don't care about. If your rules create victims that you don't care about. Jesus cares about the victims of adultery. That's a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness uh, the Pharisees, so we're just concerned about keeping the law, but just being the, the rule keepers. Jesus cares about the victims of adultery. He cares about their pain, their brokenness. He cares about their future. That's why he says, if you divorce your wife for 
you know, with no legitimate grounds. It wasn't for sexual immorality, but just because you wanted to, to divorce her. Uh, if you divorce her, you put her in a situation where she may end up marrying somebody else and, you know, that maybe she shouldn't marry, maybe herself be involved in an adulterous relationship. You're creating a victim. You're creating a victim. But Jesus cares about the victims. And we see this clearly in the way that Jesus uh, dealt with a woman that was brought to him by the religious leaders saying that she had been caught in the act of adultery. Remember this story? They brought her to Jesus and they said, uh, the law of Moses says that she should be stoned because we caught her in the act of adultery. And yes, according to the law of Moses, her punishment uh, should have been to be stoned to death. But Jesus not only uh, allowed her not to be stoned, allowed her to live, but he also refused to condemn her. When he asked her, where are those that condemned you? After Jesus told them, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all dropped their stones and walked away. And he asked her, who are, where are those that condemn her? And, well, they're gone. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. There was a law. There was a law. But Jesus was concerned about her. Because the law was, had created these victims. And this is why... As we read in Malachi 2.16, where, where God says, I hate divorce. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. God is concerned about those that have been overwhelmed with cruelty. And so I think one of the things we need to understand about this is that Jesus is concerned with victims of adultery. Now, secondly, from Matthew 5.32, uh, I think we should also understand that this is not the only allowance made for divorce in the scriptures. Jesus said, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and if she's been unfaithful, then that's a legal grounds for divorce. It's what he's saying. But for us to say, okay, that's it. Anything else, anything else is not legal grounds. Just if there's been adultery. Well, what if the husband beats the wife? Well, as long as, you know, he didn't commit adultery, she has to stay married to him. Now, that's not true. That's not true. It's only true if we believe that this is the only exception. Again, I, I, I have to emphasize this. Jesus was specifically dealing with an issue here. He's not trying to give him the whole, uh, you know, our, uh, overarching teaching on divorce, but he's just answering the debate between the Hillel and Shammai schools of thoughts and so these two verses really can hardly be thought to represent the sum total of Jesus teaching on divorce so where do we go well uh, Paul addresses and expands on divorce in 1st Corinthians seven fifteen, where he says that abandonment abandonment is a legitimate reason for divorce if a wife is abandoned by her husband he clearly has decided you know, he's broken the covenant of marriage. And so if she divorces him, she's not breaking the covenant. He's already broken the covenant when he abandoned her. Or vice versa, if she abandons him, whether she abandons him to go with somebody else or for some other reason, uh, that's, that's a, a legitimate reason for divorce. And the other allowance for divorce is what I just alluded to just a while ago, and that's something that's understood in Scripture, and, and that is the allowance for abuse. 
for abuse. It's clear. It's clear from God's care and concern for his creation that he would not allow someone to continue in an abusive marriage. Whether we're talking about physical abuse or talking about uh, even, even sexual abuse or emotional abuse. He would not allow someone to continue in an abusive marriage because God is more concerned. This is what's clear in Scripture. He's more concerned for the, for the welfare of those who are married than He is for the institution of marriage, even though marriage was His idea. This is what maybe the, the Pharisees couldn't understand. He's concerned for the victims uh, not of marriage, but of the way that we as humans have interpreted marriage and have made allowances for divorce. It's not that there's anything wrong with marriage. Marriage is God's ideal. It was perfect the way that God made it. But what's, what creates victims, what creates abuse is the interpretations of God's ideal and the allowances that men have made for divorce. We see this multiple times in the Gospels. What we see is Jesus was willing to do what the Pharisees would not do, and that is to show compassion to a person in need who was caught up in the religious systems of the day. The woman that we talked about a minute ago, the woman caught in adultery, the Pharisees wanted to make an example of her. They wanted to follow the law to a T. Jesus wanted to set her free from her sin. The man with a withered hand in, in the temple on a, on a Sabbath, the Pharisees were willing to let him continue in his suffering because it was a Sabbath and they had to keep the Sabbath. But Jesus said, no, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And he said it was more important to set the man free and to heal him than to be bound by religious systems. I, I say this to illustrate that even though God is passionate about marriage, He's just as compassionate for the hurting men and women in broken marriages. So, the allowances for divorce appear to be the three A's. The three A's. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Adultery, abandonment. And abuse. Three cases where God's concern for the individuals in a broken marriage is greater than the marriage itself because the covenant of marriage by this point has already been broken. In the cases of adultery, abandonment, and abuse, the covenant of marriage has already been broken by the spouse who committed adultery or who abandoned his wife or abused his wife or vice versa. But here's what I want to leave you with today. Even though adultery is a serious sin, it is not the unpardonable sin. It is not a sin that cannot be forgiven. I want this to be clear that no one should ever feel that they are excluded from God's love or His kingdom because of adultery, because they committed adultery. If you sincerely repent and understand the seriousness of your sin, and if you turn to God's limitless love, then... You can be forgiven. His love is limitless. His mercy, His grace, they're all limitless. And I assure you that God will forgive you. But you've got to remember what Jesus did, or what He said rather to the woman caught in adultery. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. So God calls for a change of heart. You, you've been committing adultery, you've been you know, committing sexual immorality, 
if you ask God to forgive you, he'll forgive you. But he also says, go and sin no more. Stop it. Don't go any further in this. Don't do this anymore. But again, let, let us not make the mistake that the Pharisees made. They were focused on looking for grounds for divorce. That's why they created so many allowances and loopholes in their documents. Instead, have the same passion that God has for faithfulness in your marriage. Instead, fight for your marriage. You can't control the hearts and actions of, of your spouse, but you can make a decision to do whatever is possible to keep your marriage alive. As far as is uh, under your control. You know, the Bible teaches often about forgiveness and reconciliation. And there's no reason to believe that in a difficult marriage, forgiveness and reconciliation can't be pursued. Of course they can be pursued. You just have to commit to a forever view of marriage. Commit to a forever view of marriage. You know, one of the legal grounds in, uh, in many states, one of the legal grounds for no-fault divorce is something called irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences. That may constitute legal grounds for divorce, but it does not constitute biblical grounds for divorce. In fact, what the Bible teaches is that all kinds of differences should be addressed and resolved, whether differences in a marriage or, or just in any other relationship. They should be addressed and they should be resolved. The reality is that my wife and I, and God has allowed us to be married for 40 years, and the truth is that my wife and I have had irreconcilable differences all through our marriage. We still do. I mean, there are things that I believe that are nearly impossible for me to reconcile with things that she believes. And we just learn to deal with it, right? Now, the major issues, yeah, we've reconciled them. But there's still some things that I'm like, okay, I love her and I want her to be happy. So we learn to compromise or we learn to defer to each other. And we really do defer a lot to each other. But irreconcilable differences is not biblical grounds for divorce. So commit to a forever view of marriage and do whatever is needed to avoid divorce. And maybe somebody watching online today, maybe somebody listening to this later um, on a replay or even on a podcast later, you, you need to commit your life to God and begin to learn the biblical teachings about Commitment to God, commitment to your spouse. And if you do that, I believe your marriage will only get stronger. Maybe you need to avoid, maybe what you need to avoid divorce is to get marital counseling or marriage counseling. You know, do it. You know, if you're physically sick, you go see a doctor, right? That makes sense. If your marriage needs help, go get some counseling. Go get some help with people who are trained to help you. But there's, there is a beautiful place in your marriage. There's a beautiful place in your marriage. And maybe you haven't gotten there yet. Maybe you haven't gotten there yet. But it's a beautiful place of satisfaction. It's a beautiful place of ultimate fulfillment. But to get to that beautiful place, if you haven't gotten there yet, to get to the most satisfying place in your relationship, you have to be willing to persevere through the dark, and the tough part of your journey.
You've got to be willing to persevere. You're never going to experience that beautiful place, that most uh, intimate relationship that you're going to have with your spouse. If you, if you want to bail on your marriage during the tough times, if you give up, throw in the towel, you know, use the escape clause when the going gets tough, you're never going to get to that beautiful part if you haven't gotten there yet. That's a tragedy of divorce, really, is that so many people give up. They give up before they get to the best place, to that beautiful place. So my final thought is simply this. Trust God to bring healing and support and hope, rather. Trust God to bring healing and hope. Turn to God. Trust Him. Work, work through it. Keep that forever view of marriage in mind and work through the issues, work through the differences. They're not irreconcilable, and if they are, then that's not a reason for divorce. Trust God to bring healing and hope. And so today I want us to do that. I want us to just turn to God. My purpose has, has not been only, uh, has been not only to try to understand what Jesus teaches about marriage, but more importantly, to turn to God and ask Him to strengthen our marriages. Not just to try to understand what Jesus teaches about divorce, but to get to a place where we say, divorce is not an option. Short of those three exceptions, divorce is not an option. Because we can have God's passion for faithfulness in marriage, knowing that He has a compassion for us, were we to end up in a broken marriage. God understands and God heals and he brings hope and helps us to smile again. I'm going to invite you to bow for prayer as we conclude this time. Father, I thank you for the things that we continue to learn from your word. And I thank you for speaking to us. Lord, I understand that we all approach your word with with a bias or two. And so, God, we really look to your Holy Spirit to guide us, to keep us from allowing these biases to cloud the plain reading of Scripture. But I believe, dear God, that the plain reading of Scripture is that you have a passion for faithfulness in marriages, but you also care about those who are victims of a marriage, of a divorce, Victims of unfaithfulness. Victims of abandonment or, or abuse. Because that's who you are. So I pray for someone today who maybe has suffered through adultery, abandonment or, or abuse. And Lord, they're looking for the next step. I just pray that they would understand, first of all, that you love them and you care for them. And that you're more concerned about them and their spiritual, emotional, even physical health. We turn to you, Father, in our time of need. And I pray for every marriage in this room today, those that are watching online, that we would make that commitment that I think and I believe is taught by your word, a commitment to a forever view of marriage, to working through the hard times, to going through that tunnel of chaos, knowing that at the other end, there's light, there's healing, there's hope. So today, Father, we turn to you in prayer. We turn to you in worship. 
asking you to bless our marriages. For we pray this in Jesus' name.